You know, if you've been here for the last several weeks, we're in the middle of a series of messages that we've entitled Holy Habits. It's really a discipleship training series, a reminder for us as uh, we are walking in faith and growing in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of those uh, spiritual disciplines, as we call them, some of those uh, areas in our life where we need to exercise our spiritual muscles so that we can continue to be faithful to what God has called us to be as we follow after Christ. And this morning, I want to let you in on a little information, a little insider information. You can't do anything with this that will make you money. This is an insider trading info. This is just like what goes on in my life as your pastor. One of the things I've wondered if people wonder about is how does a pastor write a sermon? Maybe you think that I, I just read someone else's sermon to you on a Sunday. I only do that once every week. <laughs> You're on. Sermon writing is one of those tasks that's a part of pastoral ministry that's uh, both fun, it's rewarding, and it's also challenging. And here's my norm. I have lots of folders on my computer and lots of scraps of paper uh, in my life, some even in my wallet. When something hits me as a, an idea for a sermon series or for a, a single sermon, it gets written down. It gets uh, inputted into my phone or my tablet or my computer so that I can reference it again and again. Sometimes when I'm away from you and I'm I'm under someone else's message. It's hard for me just to sit under a message without taking notes so that I can maybe eventually preach that outline. There's lots of files and folders and ideas and sketches and just scribbles, some that I can read and some that I can't, uh, that make their way into an idea folder. And then uh, as the Lord leads, as a passage of Scripture is revealed to me, oftentimes in my own uh, personal devotions, an idea or a thought happens, and I scribble it down in a way uh, that prioritizes and says this might be something that we need to focus on as a church, something that I need to get off of my chest that the Lord is leading me to do. And I, I begin to put together a, a full manuscript, actually, I'm a little old school in that idea. And early in my ministry, I tried, I tried my best uh, to write an entire sermon in one setting, one time. I used to go to a coffee shop when we lived in Shippensburg, my first pastor where I was the lead pastor. And I would go to this coffee shop every Tuesday morning, and I would spend the entire day in this coffee shop. That's what's wrong with me. <laughs> Lots of coffee. And I would spend that whole time there uh, and try to write in one setting a whole sermon, one time. Now in my ministry, a uh, sermon's really being written for uh, many days in a week, often many days in multiple weeks. And it just kind of continues to come out and continue to uh, take on a form of its own, hopefully with the Holy Spirit's leading. And, and after I've written what I think is possibly every word I would ever need to say on a message subject, when my manuscript is kind of out there, written in my word processor, then starts the editing process. Ugh. No, no one really, well, there are some people that like editing, and you're mean, red-penned people. <laughs> I don't think we really like the editing process, right? Uh, sometimes I'm, I'm kind of proud uh, about what I've created in my initial manuscript, and then when I go through the editing process, often uh, that takes up the, the, the longest part of sermon writing for me, is going through, pouring over, asking the Holy Spirit to give me the editing process of something that's going to be spoken twice on a Sunday morning and then put into a file. 
And then as the edits happen, as I'm continuing to look through my message and read through these ideas and look through this outline in manuscript, I continue to sense this needs to be stricken, this needs to be added. I have things written in the margins of my messages every week and parts that are highlighted and parts that are scratched out and parts that are said, don't say this unless they're in a good mood. (laughs) That was one of them. The editing process takes uh, a long time. And all of us have experienced what it means to edit things in life, right? When we were in school, we wrote papers. We spent time pouring over a typewriter. I didn't type on a typewriter. We had computers. But you know the process of editing. You know that you need to use the whiteout, clean things up, move through. This morning... I want to challenge us to the reality, challenge us to the, uh, the idea of the reality that our lives, as we are walking in faith with Jesus Christ, our lives are under a constant edit, or at least they should be. Our lives are a manuscript. They're an outline. They're full of story. They're full of ideas. They're full of experiences that we've experienced in life so far. Things that are yet to be written. And I want you to see the power of the Holy Spirit as an editor. And that he is revealing to you and to me consistently areas in our life that need to be stricken changed, refined, transformed, added, crossed out. Just like in a message, sermon that I'm writing, the last time that I edit a message. (laughs) This isn't actually true because sometimes I edit while I'm going. But on a Sunday morning, my last personal discipline is coming into the office early and reading back through my notes. And I spend time in prayer again on Sunday morning, that last chance that I think I have in that moment to go back over the message, read it through one more time, highlight again, cross some things out. Just a couple weeks ago, Pastor Bob came in a little bit after me and he walked past my door and he saw me deep into my notes and I had my pen and my highlighter and uh, there was probably smoke coming out. And he looked at me and he's like, are you you writing your message? (laughs) I'm editing my message, thank you very much. The edit continues, right? Until the last moment, so too is God refining us through his Holy Spirit continually. We Wesleyans, we call it sanctification. We are in this progressing salvation. We are continuing to become more and more and more and more like Jesus every day. To steal the words from one of, again, my favorite childhood church songs, he is still working on me to make me what I ought to be. God is still working on us. I believe it with all my heart. There are areas in our lives that we need the edit in. Things removed, things added, things refined, things changed. How we find those areas, how we discover those areas of our life that need God's work is through the spiritual discipline of confession. 
Confession. What a fun word, right? If you're weird like me, confession equals uh, every movie you've ever seen that involved a, a Catholic church, right? I, every movie, I have, I, I've watched a lot of movies, some that I'm proud of, some that I'm not. But every, every movie that includes a Catholic confession scene usually involves a, a, the, the bad guy, or the maybe he should be the bad guy, but we don't know yet. And he's just slaughtered 16 people outside. I haven't watched a lot of movies that slaughter people. Go with me, okay? And he finds himself in a Catholic church. Right? You see the scene? And he finds himself in front of the, uh, the, the confessional booth. And he opens up the door to the confessional booth and is hiding out in that moment. And the priest slides open the door and says, What have you done, son? And the man continues to list those 16 sins that just happened. And the priest says... All can be forgiven if you follow this process. I'll give you forgiveness. Maybe you've experienced that in a Catholic church. I, I don't know. I haven't. As, as a good Protestant, as the Protestant Reformation took place, I think we've been a little bit scared of what confession means in the life of a Christian. And maybe in an attempt to, to, uh, to not be Catholic, we have quite literally, kind of uh, steered clear of this aspect of what it means to be a follower of Christ, to, to walk in faith. We kind of steer clear. We're a little bit scared. We're a little bit nervous about this idea of confession. And yet, for centuries, confession has been an aspect of the Christian's life that must be exhibited if we are going to grow to become more and more like Jesus. I want you to hear, today you know, in, in our world, confession is like this weird thing. Now, often we don't, even, we don't even experience confession in, in the jurisdiction, uh, whatever that's called, the jury kind of uh, idea of our legal system. When someone gets in trouble for something, when they get uh, arrested and they, they, they come and apologize, perhaps, or they lawyer up, right? Uh, they, they apologize for what they've done. One of our next step questions when someone's apologizing for what they've done is we say, I wonder if they're sorry for what they've done or that they got caught doing it. I mean, we've raised our kids. We've told them, I've told you this before, uh, we've told them that it would be far better for them to come home from school and tell us the bad thing that they did than for us to get the phone call from the teacher or the principal or the police chief. Ezra, it's probably going to be the police chief. Let's be honest. Now i got to give him five bucks. Confession, really, in our, in our culture, it doesn't seem to happen a lot. And yet, Scripture tells us, reveals to us, not just that it's okay for us to admit that there's brokenness and that there's things we don't do right, but that it's mandatory. Let's look at what the Bible says about the benefit of confession. We're going to turn to the book of 1 John. And as you're turning there, or maybe you're opening your app to follow along in the Bible app, you can follow along with the outline this morning. I'd love for you to do that. But as you're turning there, I want to give you some background real quick on the author of 1 John. This is John the Apostle, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, one of the inner three with his, his brother James and Peter. They spent a lot of time with Jesus. They grew to know him. And here he's writing a letter to early Christians in 1 John that thankfully we have. 
And the whole of the letter of 1 John revolves around reminding these Christians to pursue the character of God, not to settle for a, a false faith. John is echoing through these pages the reality that as we pursue, if we truly are to seek God with our whole selves, to surrender completely to Him, the truth is that we will often come face to face with the reality of our brokenness, our sinfulness, our lacking of God's perfection. So I invite you to look at chapter 1, starting with verse 5. I want to read the passage, and then we're going to break it down verse by verse. I hope you know I'm excited about this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message, John writes, This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light. And there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but we go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth if we do that. Verse 7, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves, not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar. And showing that his word has no place in our heart. Chapter 2. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sin. And not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Amen. Look at verse 5 again. John writes, This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. We've all seen the image of a, a, a yin-yang image, right? Where there's a, a, a white half of a circle and a black half of the circle. And in both of those halves of the circle, there's a little bit of the other color in it, Right? And we've had this idea from Asia of every one of us has a little bit of bad in us if we're good and a little bit of good in us if we're bad. John wipes that idea off the face of the earth in this passage, right? Especially about God's holiness, his perfection. There is no darkness in God at all. He is the standard. He is the perfect standard. He is holy. He is perfect. He is without blemish. He is this is the character of god that he is light there's no darkness in him there's only two options in the world there's not gray here john says there's only darkness and light there's only light and the dark side god is all light no little bit of darkness found in him at all. And so logically, verse 6 goes on. This elementary principle, this reality, verse 6, John says, So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but we would go on living in spiritual darkness. If we would say we have relationship, we are in fellowship with God, but we continue on in this world of darkness, we are not practicing the truth. John is saying if we're on the side of God, we are therefore walking with him in his light. He is revealing himself to us. We are children of the light. We are connected to the light. 
in opposition, those who, are, who, those who are against God, those who are walking in darkness, those who are living in darkness are in opposition to the light. So the reality from Scripture is we can't, as children of the light, be satisfied to continue to walk around living in darkness. John says we're, we're, we're liars if we claim to be people of the light, but are satisfied to remain living in darkness. This is a logical, common sense reality. Verse 7 continues, If we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Don't miss that. Listen again. Make it personal. If you're living in the light, as God is in the light, then you have fellowship with others in the light. And the blood of Jesus, God's only Son, cleanses you from all sin. John uses the terms of fellowship here. Fellowship with God, fellowship uh, with each other. And, and, and this attempt to describe the relationship uh, that we have as those walking in the light. And we use the term fellowship often in English, right? We, uh, we, we, we build this church's fellowship halls, right? Well, what happens in a fellowship hall? Some of you are like, we fellowship, <laughs> dummy. You're right. We, we gather together. We eat food together. We, we, we turn on our fellowship, and we sometimes turn it off. Any of you annoyed with anyone in this building right now? Oops, Andy Rose's hand, I'm telling. <laughs> we, we, we don't like all the time fellowshipping with each other, right? We, we like to go home from time to time. I like to go home from time to time. I like to go home and say no to certain things. I like to go home and hide and relax and be human and turn it off for a moment. I love fellowshipping as much as anyone, but there are times when I don't want to fellowship. So this English understanding of what it means to fellowship is that we think we can turn things on and off. And literally, we've translated this idea of being in relationship with Jesus as this idea of the American fellowship. And that, yep, today I'm in fellowship with God. Oh yeah, it's Sunday. I look the part. I'm in fellowship. But man, don't talk to me on a, on a bad Monday. On a, on a typical Tuesday. I might not be in fellowship in that moment. The reality is, in this scripture, we're understanding fellowship to mean something far more meaningful than on-again, off-again relationship. It's far deeper than us to be able to have this understanding that we can be in and out in the same hour. Rather, fellowship with God, fellowship with each other is an identifying marker. It really helps us to understand that we are in a connected, unifying glue together as children of the light that unites us together in a way that fellowship doesn't. We are bought with a price marked by God himself. Some have thought and even taught that 
being children of the light, having the identity of children of the light has meant that we can't mess up as children of the light. That is so dangerous and false. Verse 8 speaks to this reality. Verse 8, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. The good news, again, this morning, as children of the light, when we do mess up, the blood of Jesus is all we need to cleanse us from unrighteousness. The, the blood of Jesus is all we need. It's all we've got. We, we can't do anything good enough on our own to earn forgiveness, salvation. You ever been fooled or deceived by someone in life? Anybody ever tricked you? It's, it's not fun, right? I mean, there's humor in tricking sometimes. Come to our house. Ezra jumps out of shadows to try to trick us and scare us. It's way fun when Jess gets caught. He gets punished when I get caught in it. <laughs> We've been fooled and deceived by other people. It's ugly when that happens, right? How about when we fool or deceive ourselves, the scripture says. I I think it's even uglier when we buy into something ourselves. We believe something. We've kind of built a case around something. And then we find out that there is no Bigfoot after we spent 40 years in the woods. There is Bigfoot. I don't know. When we deceive ourselves, when we fool ourselves, there's something even uglier about that experience. John says, if we ever think, if we ever have built ourselves up to a a point of self-righteousness where we think we are no longer doing anything wrong, that we are without blemish, that we are good enough, that we can say this idea, I'm a good person, or I'm I'm at least a, a better than this person, we are fooling ourselves. That's the only thing we're doing if we have that mindset. Can I say it again? Boldly, we can't save ourselves by being good people. You can't save yourself from the coming destruction of the world by being a good person. Can't. No one will be saved by being good enough. It is only by the blood of Jesus. Nowhere in God's scripture does God ask us to be good people. Rather, God commands us to be godly people, set apart ones, children of the light, bathing daily in his light. This is a lifetime pursuit. Again, this relationship, this identity is not something that we turn on and turn off when we take a name tag. This is not something that we just simply do by coming into his presence in a place of worship. This is a lifetime pursuit of his light. This is a a daily grind, a holistic lifestyle. This is, as Paul calls it in Scripture, a marathon, not a sprint. How do we do this? How do we come into his presence? How do we experience his light in our life? How do we strive to be in his light as he is the light? Verse 9 says, but if we confess our sins to him, if we admit our brokenness, if we humble ourselves, if we confess our failure to him, he is faithful 
And he is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Somebody should stand and shout if we were 20 years older. If we confess, confession is the how. Confession is the how. That's the only way we are going to experience his light in our life is for us to admit that we need more of it. Amen? Confession is the how. It's the discipline. It's the holy habit. Confession means for us to acknowledge our faults, our failures, our sin before God, our imperfection, our lack of meeting his perfect standard. It requires humbling ourselves before the one who already knows that it's our brokenness. Yeah? You ever told God anything that he didn't know? No, you didn't. Does, does confession bring God into the picture? Scripture says he knows the very number of hairs in our nose. I mean, on our head. Some of you, some of you had more hair in your nose than on your head. Still immature. Still, he's working on me. Still working on me. Scripture says God even knows. He even cares. He even knows the very number of hairs on our heads. So are we bringing him up to speed when we come before him and we admit our faults and our failures are lacking? No. But you know what it does? It brings us before our loving Heavenly Father in a way that humbles us and postures us to receive his loving care. It's a humbling posture. It's for us. Scripture says if we do confess, he is faithful. What's faithful mean? We talk about it a lot in relationships, right? Someone's faithful, they're there for us. They're they're a sure thing. God is the perfection of faithful. Amen? Amen? It's one of his characteristics. He's always there. He is he's a no-brainer. He's not going to fail. He is always there. He is always ready. He always keeps his end of the deal. He will always do what he says. He is faithful and he is just. Just again? Justice. He is always on the side of truth. He is always on the side of truth, the side of righteousness. He always does what is right. He is faithful and just to forgive you and me. Does forgiveness mean that there's no repercussions for sin? Somebody somebody who knows better say no. Are there no consequences for sin because God is so faithful and just to forgive me? Everything's just going to be fine. It is in the end. But we will have repercussions for sin. There are consequences for our choices against God. His forgiveness is perfect. It's all-encompassing. I love the picture that our sin, as we confess it before Him, when we experience forgiveness, is as far as the East is from the West. But forgiveness comes with discipline. Forgiveness comes with punishment sometimes. 
This is so foreign to our culture today, right? We want, we want the benefit of forgiveness. We want God to uh, forgive us for the way we are. We want each other, right, to forgive us for the way I am. I just am this way. Just get over it. You ever said that to your spouse? Careful. Why can't you just accept me for who I am? Why can't you just let me be? Do we just let our kids be? God has a standard. His standard is perfect. He offers us the beauty of falling before Him, admitting our brokenness, and He offers His faithful justice through the blood of Jesus Christ. John says to confess, to acknowledge our wrongness, to admit that we're wrong. We say, admitting our wrong, that's not very natural. Scripture says it's a necessity. King David in Scripture is known, is quoted in other passages as a man after God's own heart. And yet if you've done any character study, if you've looked into the man after God's own heart, you've seen some pretty blatant public blemishes, yeah? He's done some things in Scripture. It's fascinating. Take a time. If you don't know who King David is, Google him. Google's the new Bible study, right? Take some time. Dig into the story of King David. It's fascinating. King David experienced firsthand the benefit of admitting his failures. Psalm 32, I want you to look at this, just seven verses. This is a psalm of David. and I think it gives us another perspective on the importance of confession. Verses 1 and 2. Oh, what joy, David writes, for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Do you know that joy? A joy that comes through a, a life of confession. A joy awaiting those who experience the discipline of confession and forgiveness. Joy that comes from the freedom of no longer bearing the weight of guilt and shame day after day after day. Joy is available for those who live the discipline of confession. Humbling themselves before God. That is a benefit of confession is living a lifestyle of joy. Experiencing godly Joy. What happens if we don't? Verses 3 and 4, David says, When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long, day and night. Your hand, God of discipline, was heavy on me. My strength, he writes beautifully, evaporated like water in the summer heat. Joy available for a life of confession. Weakness, groaning, pain, anguish for not living a life of confession. Verses five, verse 5, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you, God, and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And what do you know? 
you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. David exclaims, I confessed. I laid my life bare before the one who already knows. And I found forgiveness. And my guilt is gone. And from the pages of Scripture, David continues. He encourages you and me today. In verses 6 and 7, Therefore, David writes, Let all the godly pray to you, God, while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. And in his testimony, For you, God, are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. David's saying to you and me, Scripture is saying, Don't don't make the same mistakes that David has made. Confess while you still can. Find freedom from the burden of sin and of shame. David would yell to us today, walk in his light every day. Walk in his light. Experience the freshness of his light. Run from darkness. Walk in the light. In closing, let me give us three steps. If you're practical and you need three steps, here they are. Number one, examine your life. Take a look. A a deep look. Today, in the stillness of the closing moments of our time together, tonight before bed, sometime this week, take a look at your life, your thoughts, your actions, your motives, and think of it like you think of the way you've edited papers. Take a look. Look for those areas that need edited. Ask the Lord to reveal them in your life. Examine those areas through the the lens of Scripture, not the lens of popular thought or ideas from well-meaning people. Allow the lens of Scripture to reveal the ways in which your life is not measuring up to the standard that God demands. It doesn't. Second step, express sorrow. Sorrow uh, doesn't mean that we have to go hide in a corner somewhere, amen? And and suck our thumb and cry. That's not what sorrow means. Sorrow means to acknowledge that our way, our attempts at, at reaching a standard are not enough. It means for us to have to acknowledge the reality of my brokenness. Sorrow means for me to admit the ways in which I have failed to meet God's standard break my heart as they break his. And again, sorrow cannot mean justifying my brokenness as not as bad as someone else's. My sorrow for not meeting God's standard should break my heart. And it doesn't stop there. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow brings repentance. A word we throw around a lot in the church. The third practical step is to exercise your faith. Live repentantly. If you know the forgiveness of the Lord... If you are experiencing the joy that comes through confession, 
repent. Repent doesn't just simply mean to confess. It doesn't mean simply to uh, lay your sins before the Lord. It means to take action and do the opposite, to run the other direction. Run away from sin is what is required after confession. Confession doesn't end with admitting that we're wrong. Rather, it demands, it launches us into doing what is right. As children of the light, let us shine before men and women. Remove the darkness. Replace it with more of his light. Would you stand? Would you bow your heads with me? You heard it said already today that we don't believe it's by mistake that you are here at Hyde Wesleyan Church today. And as your pastor this morning, allow me to just say again, I don't think it's by mistake that God has us in these moments together. I believe His Holy Spirit is working. And I just want to, in the stillness of this moment as we wrap up, I just want to ask that if the Lord is dealing with you, the words of this passage, these passages of Scripture, this message, has caused something inside of you to stir. And, and maybe you need to acknowledge right now that God wants to do a transformational work in you for the first time or for the 400th time. But if God's doing something inside of you, would you just simply raise your hand and let me know so I can pray for you? Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Can I tell you real quick, you are in good company, brothers and sisters. He's still working on us. Lord Jesus, would you add your blessing to all that has been spoken here that is done according to your will? Lord, would you do a work inside of each of us as we examine our hearts and lives? Lord, I pray that it would be a discipline we do every single day. And God, as you reveal those areas in our life, I, I pray that we would express the sorrow necessary that would lead us to repentance. We don't want to be stuck in the way we are. We believe your power, your light, your might is enough to bring us out of the bondages of sin. God, would you do a work? Would you do your work? We pray for your power. Pray for your might. Less of us, more of you. God, I pray for those who express that you are doing something even in this moment in their heart and life. God, whatever it is, whatever area that has already been revealed to these who have raised their hands and others in this room, would you fill those dark areas with your light? Would you be faithful and just to forgive? Would you call us all to repentance and a lifetime of pursuing you 
running from the darkness and into the light. Sanctify us every day by your Holy Spirit, I pray. And this morning, if you believe these things, would you say with me, amen. Amen. God bless you, Hyde Wesleyan Church. Go in the grace of our Father, His glorious Son.